Hey there, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm Rachel Geringer. For this episode, I sat down with Angie Hegeman, Operations Director for the East Tennessee State University's Center for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention and Treatment. Angie talks about the current state of the drug epidemic in the region and describes how the center works to partner with affected communities in order to research the epidemic. She also tells us about her own research through her PhD program with the Letcher County Culture Hub and some local volunteer fire departments. She says story circles and listening projects might be the missing piece to combating the opioid epidemic and hopes that by adding more heart to the healing process, we can start to see a real decline in the epidemic. My name is Angela Hegeman, and I live in Johnson City, Tennessee currently. Um, I'm from a little town outside of Boone, North Carolina, um, where I worked most of my career before heading to Johnson City and working at East Tennessee State University in the ETSU Center for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention and Treatment, which is a really long name. Um, and maybe we'll be changing that soon based on sort of the nature of the epidemic. Um, but my role there is the title is operations director. And so I sort of am the connector and liaison between the community and the research that we do. Great. Could you talk a little bit about the research that the center does and the, uh, the, the work generally that happens that's based there? Certainly. I think the best way, I think the best way to begin is to sort of talk about how the center was created. Um, And so in 2012, there were a few researchers at ETSU focused on the prescription drug epidemic, Um, but they weren't connected in any real way. So there was a community pharmacist named Guy Wilson, and he was connected to our provost for the Academic and Health Sciences Center, Wilsey Bishop. And he went to Wilsey and he said, man, this thing is out of control. This opioid epidemic is changing the landscape of our community. What can you do as a university? ETSU has been sort of known for giving back to the community and being very connected to the region in a way that maybe other larger universities are not. And so she reached out to a few people that she knew were working on this and said, "Uh, you guys need to get together. And so they did. They started just sort of meeting every two weeks and thinking about how to fund something that would bring them all together. They wrote an NIH grant, um, which are very competitive, but they got it and were funded for five years. And the overarching aim of that grant was to um, build the infrastructure for future research. Well, ETSU being ETSU, they began to sort of invite folks from the community. Um, and more and more community folks began to sit at the table. And now there are about 275 people, most of them who are not ETSU employees, who are discussing this once a month. Um, and so from that initial meeting of about five or six researchers at the university, we now have this sort of grassroots cr- community dialogue that feeds the future research, that feeds the clinic. And so in 2016, they were formally named, we were formally named the ETSU Center for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention and Treatment. Um, but it, it began with that group, and that group is foundational now to sort of um, They say practice-based research and research-based practice, and so really telling us what's happening on the ground and partnering with us on all the projects that we do. Could you describe the difference between or the similar, what those terms mean that you just mentioned there? Yeah, so research-based 
practice would be folks in the field, say, um, someone doing prevention work in the community, reducing stigma, um, doing outreach to folks who maybe need treatment, getting them to treatment, and basing their practice, their daily work, on the evidence or the research, what they say is most effective. But a lot of the times, we don't think about practice-based research. So are researchers paying attention to what practitioners are experiencing every day in the field? Are they basing their research on that? Are they just reading a study and building on a previous study or doing a clinical trial. So I think it's really important. There are other terms like community-based participatory research where the community guides it. But I'll say in studying it, I'm in the doctoral program at ETSU now, I meet few, very few practitioners that are really doing that very, very well. So say you go into a community and they're not interested in your research. Well, the true tenets of CBPR, the community-based participatory research, would say, okay, we don't do the research. The community's not feeling it. They don't need it. And so I, I don't know a lot of folks that are doing that really, really well. And, and we don't always do it well. But I would say that most of our work is directly guided by the needs of the community and what they say you know, needs to happen. And so the research that's being like what's being produced from that research mm-hmm. is it being is it like reports that are being shared nationally in academic circles is it reports that are being used by practitioners as you're saying like how's that yeah shaking out it's kind of broad and so it's going to it's going to feel like a long answer that's but, fine <laughs> um the center has sort of four separate cores one core is just the administration those of us that are being paid to work and keep it all together Another core is research. And so specifically around our research, we do publications in peer-reviewed journals. Um, Three of our um, older studies that were funded there, you know, the 2012-2013 area, one was about how do physicians speak to patients about the risks of opioids? And if they notice a patient is struggling, do they feel comfortable, competent, and ready to have a conversation that says, I'm worried about you, or I'm seeing some red flags. And so we wanted to know how doctors are talking about this to patients, because there wasn't a lot of literature. And what we found was that there are dramatic ends of the spectrum, um, and we're still sort of digging through the the qualitative pieces of that and doing the quantitative sort of survey now. So we, we asked, we did a lot of focus groups and interviews. And then now we're building a sort of a bigger survey to, to send to more people that's uh, less talk and more checkbox Likert scale answers. But what we found is they, they don't feel that comfortable. It's hard when someone is beginning to become dependent on prescription drugs or they're behaving in a different way or they're feeling more desperate. It's very hard to have these conversations and physicians aren't trained for it. They're trained to recognize and diagnose and um, but not necessarily to have mental health conversations, right? And so they weren't feeling comfortable and confident. And so our goal long term, obviously, would be increase that that self efficacy to do that. The other was ha- the other study was how do pharmacists talk to physicians and do they blame each other and how do they feel about each other in this whole opioid epidemic? And we found that they it's very much an us versus them. Some towns they talk, but most of the time they think physician wrote it. I'm going to fill it, and they're part of the problem. And and so the pharmacists weren't seeing themselves as active members of this dialogue. And so we're, we're hoping that that changes. And so we've published on that. The other was a drug take-back study. So how far will people drive to drop off their unused and um, expired prescription drugs? What kind of people donate them? What makes them donate? Is it TV ads, radio ads, flyers? Um, so we've 
published two manuscripts on that and have one under review or one in development now. And then recently we've been funded to ask pharmacists how they feel about harm reduction. So syringe service programs and things like that. And so that's a new study. So we're getting more into the harm reduction field now. And then a number of other um, manuscripts coming forward. The other, the only other one that I can think of that was just published was that uh, we recommended a series of interventions across the continuum of disease. So we can't just treat folks who have active addiction without paying attention to keep keeping young people from starting. There's a whole continuum that you need to, to address. And if you just do put pressure on one end of that continuum, it sort of blows up on another end, kind of like a balloon. Um, and so we have a new paper that talks about how to address it across the continuum. So that's the research piece. And then separately, we do lots of stuff with the community just because the communities need us. We um, present when everyone and when anyone says, will you come show up, somebody from the team shows up. Um, we're working with schools to talk about evidence-based prevention in the schools. We're working with the workplace, how to address substance abuse in the workplace early before people get fired. Um, just a number of projects. We just show up and go out into the world and across the region. So we've presented at states and states at the national level, at the international level. So just kind of being out there and listening and, and doing what we can. Great. Yeah. Um, so how is the work that you all are doing, how would you say it's like somewhat different than than other sort of academic research groups or institutions? I think it's the connection with the community. Um, and I don't want to disparage any academic institution, um, but the incentives and the... Um, the focus of large research institutions is to get tenure and to publish and to do good research. And there just isn't a lot of space and time to really get out into the field. And most of them, most centers don't have positions like mine that are non-faculty, non-research, just a liaison essentially between the research and the community. And so I think that that's what's unique. I worked in the nonprofit sector for more than a decade. And honestly and truly, I told my friends, I, I feel like I'm selling out going to academia because I'd worked in a nonprofit sector in the nonprofit sector with high-risk youth and families. And a number of institutions came in and did research on our work. They didn't name us in a publication. We weren't asked to be co-authors. And once they got their paper, we never saw or heard from them again. And I would say that's what's really unique and what I had to really examine. And I knew when I met this team that they weren't like that. And so I would say the research is maybe third priority. And my, if my boss is listening, I might get in trouble for saying that. But um, <laughs> the problem, addressing the problem is first meeting the needs of our partners and being respectful of those needs would be second. And third would be, okay, what can we research and why should we do it? Not just for tenure and pubs and all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I did forget to mention, sure, if it's sure, okay, because sure. um, I think another thing unique about it in that fourth core of the center is that we have now um, an out patient treatment clinic that provides medication-assisted treatment. So we saw that as probably in our five to 10 year plan. Um, but uh, Mountain States Health Alliance at the time um, partnered with us because 
there was no access to methadone treatment in East Tennessee. So with all the folks that we had struggling, there was plenty of buprenorphine treatment, but buprenorphine is expensive, um, it's not as well regulated, and there was no access to methadone. So folks were traveling to North Carolina and other places far away to get what they needed on a daily basis. And so we, you can only have one in a certain area, and there was a for-profit clinic that was uh, looking to maybe set up shop in our area, and, and they were okay, but we were really interested in providing holistic, like a really good MAT clinic. And so we partnered with them, we submitted the certificate of need, we submitted the application, and we've been up and running for a year now. Um, and that was really controversial. It was called Over Mountain Recovery. And we took a lot of heat. Um, a lot of people didn't want it in their back backyard. There were lots of um, angry citizens who were really worried that this would be unsafe for their community. And so I'm, I'm really proud of our team, and I'm really proud of the health system that supported us and fought the good fight, and I think we're doing really good work out there. There ha haven't been any problems um, at all, and they did a recent news story on that. So the cool thing about that, bringing us back to you said what's different, um, is that the proceeds from that clinic don't go into people's pockets. Anything above cost goes back to prevention in the region. And so it's sort of a public-private partnership that is pretty unique, I think. And could you describe what you mean by like a holistic treatment center in terms of this? Yeah, um, that is probably an overused word. Um, but a holistic treatment center, so there are ways to provide medications are supposed to be medication-assisted treatment, and often they're used in isolation. Now, just getting methadone or buprenorphine reduces mortality by about 50%. Even yeah, can you can you explain yep. that as mm -hmm. a treatment uh, strategy just for people who aren't as familiar with this, and yes. then talk more about the like additional things you do? Absolutely, yeah. This I'm, I'm glad you're asking these questions, and so the the evidence shows that when you use medications like buprenorphine, which is called um, Subutec, or buprenorphine with naloxone is Suboxone. So there are two different kinds of buprenorphine. Buprenorphine methadone and naltrexone are two of the most um, often used in, in evidence-based treatments for opioid use disorder specifically, not for other disorders, just opioid use disorder. Um, buprenorphine is a partial agonist, meaning it doesn't have sort of, it doesn't bind to the receptor that the opioids bind to um, completely. So say, for example, you had um, an oxycodone right? And it binds to a certain receptor in your brain and it latches on there. Buprenorphine is stronger. It knocks off that other um, opioid. And being a partial agonist, it doesn't have the same level of euphoria or the same danger for overdose that, say, other other opioids do. And it protects you, so it, it it helps with cravings. It maintains you. You don't have that withdrawal that, unfortunately, when you have opioid use disorder, you get pretty desperate to not have that withdrawal. So it, it helps that. And given at the right doses, it prevents people from relapsing into illicit use, um, using intravenous drugs, accessing heroin, um, doing all of the things. They stabilize. Um, so used alone, so that's buprenorphine. Methadone is a full agonist. So it does the same thing. It binds to the receptor. But it gives the high, you have to be very careful in dosing because the risk of overdose is very high. The euphoria, you can, you can take too much where buprenorphine has a ceiling effect and people don't get that sense of euphoria that you would get on methadone. So methadone is dosed in much smaller doses on a daily basis um, because, you know, when you're struggling with opioid use disorder, you don't need a, a whole bunch of the medication at once until you're stabilized. 
And so just giving people that medication at an appropriate dose alone reduces mortality by 50%. There aren't, there are hardly any drugs out there in the world that reduce mortality that much. Aspirin, for folks that have heart conditions, taking aspirin on a daily basis reduces your mortality by about 25%. Just this pill alone reduces mortality by 50%. And we know how many people are dying from this, right? So legally, you can provide buprenorphine with you know, 10 minutes of counseling, a check-in. You don't necessarily have to provide social services, um, housing, employment, all of that, right? But it's recommended. And so the more of that you can provide to help people get stable, help them get their kids back, help them find a job, the better off that they're going to be. And so it's not just the medication. So when we say holistic care, we're trying to provide all of those services, all of those supports, in an environment that doesn't feel um, just the atmosphere of a lot of these clinics you walk in and it's just I don't know I mean just from the the beautiful pictures on the wall at the clinic and you just sort of feel like home and they have yoga classes and cooking classes and all sorts of things happening so I think that was our goal was to provide that kind of care anyone that has a chronic disease if you have diabetes if you have a heart condition you're treated with this just sort of love and genuine respect and you're not asked not to take medication just fix your diet and get off your metformin but that's how we often treat addicts and so and even addicts is a word that we're trying to get away from you know persons with opioid use disorder or substance use disorder Um, and so just providing good holistic care for a chronic disease Um, I wonder if you could sort of talk about the current state of the opioid epidemic in the region? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are lots of heat maps that I could show. Central Appalachia, that's us, right? East Tennessee. I don't even know the region. I think it's northern Alabama to like Ohio, maybe? Central Appalachia. Don't necessarily quote me on this, but there are reports, and I'm pretty sure that we're four to five times more likely than non-Appalachian counties to die of an overdose. So essentially, the opioid epidemic, um, the red map where we had a a rate of greater than 20 persons per 100,000, the first contiguous counties that were touching, counties that were touching, that had those high rates were in central Appalachia, right here in East Kentucky. Um, And Eastern Tennessee, Southwest Virginia. East Kentucky, Southwest Virginia primarily had the highest rates. Opioid overdose rates continue to go up almost everywhere. Very few counties are bright spots where the overdose rate is going down. And that's due to a lot of different factors. Um, Even though we're doing a better job with um, controlling high prescribing of uh, prescribed painkillers, we are not necessarily doing a great job at mo- getting folks into treatment so that they're not seeking heroin and illicit um, fentanyl. Um, and, and so that you have drug cartels, you have people who are very aware that you have a group of people who have a high rates of substance use disorder, not easy access to treatment, and so they're bringing in what folks are looking for. Um, and so those dangerous synthetic um, opioids, fentanyl, heroin, heroin, fentanyl-laced heroin, all of those are really making the overdose rate a lot worse. Um, I think we are getting better. We're spending a lot of money uh, in our states and our in our nation to organize around this. So I think we're aware of it, right? It's not a them. It's um, We used to think of substance abuse as people who were living under bridges, people who were unemployed. And for whatever reason, um, not for whatever reason, but for a very different reason. I mean, this this epidemic was hitting 
middle-class white America, and all of a sudden people took notice, and that's sad. Um, and it has brought a lot of attention to it, and I think a lot of funding, and now we're losing so many people, we have to address it, right? So they're pumping a lot of money into it. Um, we're getting Narcan, I carry Narcan in my purse. Um, we're getting Narcan access to folks. We're trying to think of more creative ways to treat people. Hopefully we're thinking of primary prevention, the root causes of substance abuse um, and mental health disorders. So yeah, I, overdose rates are probably not gonna go down for a little while. Um, I don't know when they're expected to plateau, but things like neonatal abstinence syndrome are going down in certain areas. So other symptomology, I believe, is improving in certain areas, and we're trying to pay attention to that. But again, Central Appalachia you know, may, remains one of the worst places in the country um, for sort of the, the variety of things that can happen related to this epidemic. Um, but we're, we're aware of it. We're sending money to it. We're trying to get organized. So I hope that in five – it's going to take a long time. It took us a long time to get here. But I do think it'll plateau in the next five years or so and begin to get better. But I'm just guessing. Can you describe what the what did you the word you just used about neonatal abstinence yes. syndrome? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You hear it a lot in the um, press. They'll call it drug addicted babies, mm -hmm. and you can't be addicted or an addict if you're not sort of behaving in a way of loss of control and um, you know changing your work path. They're infants. They're babies. They're in withdrawal. So natal abstinence syndrome is when a baby is born with a set of symptoms um, that are characteristic of opioid withdrawal. Okay. Um, and so there's a Finnegan scale is the most commonly used instrument to measure that. And I believe if they, they get seven out of maybe 10 check marks of symptoms, um, they meet the criteria for, for um, neonatal abstinence syndrome. And some of the highest rates in the nation have been, I think, Sullivan County. Um, which is just real real close to here, Sullivan County in East Tennessee, Kingsport, Bristol area, had really high rates. And um, they wrapped around a lot of care and service around that problem and are seeing rates decline now. Um, so that's a real problem. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about the, um, I think you called it primary prevention, is that mm -hmm. what you called it? Which is, so thinking sort of before folks get to this point, what are some of the factors that lead to this? Is that yeah. is that what that means? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm just asking you a lot of questions about the terms you're using. But no, I... <laughs> I'm really glad because I think a lot of times people in settings, you know, this is my world, and I've been working in this world, and and people don't ask questions, especially like here on a radio show. You and I are talking; you can ask these questions. But when you're sitting in a room listening to my presentation, it's yeah, people don't raise their hands. So I, I'm really glad you're asking the questions. Um, primary prevention is essentially cells can also be called universal prevention, but it is how do we Historically, it's been things like DARE, um, things like classroom-based prevention curriculum. Um, it's been things like um, screening experts, so screening brief intervention and referral to treatment, so identifying folks who might be at risk in the doctor's office and preventing them from um, abusing in the first place. It's been parenting programs like uh, Triple P or things like that. That's been sort of the, the evidence-based primary prevention concepts, right? But when we're talking about things like the opioid epidemic that's happening in Central Appalachia, why is it happening in Central Appalachia? So then our root causes change. So the old school way of thinking of primary prevention was these evidence-based curriculum that would prevent people from starting misuse of substances. But we begin to realize things like social determinants of health, that now your zip code can um, predict your health outcomes more than your genetic code. 
where you live has everything to do with your health, right? So now we're thinking of root, root causes of, you know, um, access to care, uh, um, minority groups and how they're accessing care and have higher rates of substance use disorder, um, poverty, education, uh, your community. So all of those social determinants are starting to be a part of it. So I think we're having to look more creatively about what primary prevention is. And there's not a lot of good evidence for you know what that looks like yet. And so I think new research systems level approaches to public health are coming into play so that folks are becoming um, more aware of the need to study this, what works in communities, which is you know, sort of how I ended up in Eastern Kentucky. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about that. How so? You're connected with the Culture Hub, which mm-hmm. is a project that has been, in some ways, uh, sparked by some work at Apple Shop, but really has taken on a life of its own outside of this organization, which was the goal and is wonderful. Um, but could you talk about sort of how you got connected to the Culture Hub and um, s- what you're doing here. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'm still asking myself that. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the history of it is, yeah, these canned interventions, these primary interventions. So in my decades working at the nonprofit, I was trained in, goodness, I mean, I've 10 different curriculum, parenting curriculum, prevention curriculum, all stars for middle schoolers. I mean, and they were great. They were fine. Um, but so I was I was talking about that work at a meeting, uh, a working group meeting related to the center and with the community partners. And I was just saying, man, I feel like we're missing something about the heart and soul of the problem. This is a community problem and communities are suffering. And not only do I not know how to fix communities to keep it from happening when, you know, they were, they had jobs in coal and then the coal went away and and then folks were unemployed or they were in pain and they had disability like I don't know how to fix all of that but I believe that we have enough science and enough heart and enough strength especially in Appalachia to do something so what does that look like I mean I have a counseling degree too and so I I just knew something about how you have to heal and how healing often comes through storytelling or sharing or or feeling that you're not alone in something and feeling that sense of connection and community. And so I was saying something like this in a meeting and this guy named Wayne Coombs came over to me and he's like, hey, we need to have lunch. Let's talk about this. I have some ideas. And Wayne worked here at Apple Shop, maybe in the 70s, I'm just guessing, a long time ago. As a young man, he worked it here. And he's like, yeah, there's this there's this thing called uh, performing our future and story circles and all of these things. And they sound like what you're talking about. And I was like, oh, no way. No way. Public narrative, like we could heal from this and this intergenerational trauma that's been caused. And so I just became very interested and started reading everything that I could about it. Um, and then I learned that that at Apple Shop, not only were you using story circles and media and stories to change the view of Appalachia and and around this epidemic, you know, different plays and things, um, but you were also letting that lead to creating a new economic forecast. Or and I thought, oh my gosh, so like this could solve all the problems, right? If we if we heal and we tell our story and we talk about it and we become better connected to the community and we create new economy. And we prevent the next generation from suffering, maybe, right? So I just said, I want to go to that place. And I'm part-time doctoral student. Um, and so I convinced some folks that this was a good place for me to be for my doctoral placement. And so I've been observing the process and open to helping in any way that I could. Um, 
to see, is the culture hub ready for some sort of evaluation? Can I help them tell their story? Can I do any background research for them? How can I help? And so I've spent the summer sort of trying to figure that out, attending meetings, um, and helping in what, you know, what ways I could to collect some new stories. Great. Yeah. Um, And then I also have learned that you're connected to some volunteer fire departments in the county. Yeah. Um, So could you talk about sort of that that journey yeah and and what you're hoping to do through that Mm -hmm. that's sort of a new iteration of what the field placement was so the field placement was technically over to end in august they let me extend it for another semester um and i'll be around i mean i love this community and this work so i'm going to be hanging out but i kept hearing stories of the opioid epidemic even though we were supposed to be talking about the economy and we're supposed to be talking about the community and how to build the local economy and we own what we make and and changing all of that, um, stories of the opioid epidemic were popping up in every conversation, substance abuse in every conversation. And I learned that your local fire departments are responding to a number of um, overdoses on a regular basis, like high numbers of them. And I started asking questions about that. How is that for the people who are responding? How do they feel about that? I started hearing things like, we're going to the same houses over and over and over, and should we be doing this? Should lay people have Narcan in their purses, or should it only be medical? So lots of questions and and things that we're talking about a lot, and just wondering how this was impacting both the folks who are overdosing and their relationship to their community members. And so I I said, is there any way that I can learn more about this? And they said, well, sure, you can ride along. And I said, well, great. This sounds like a great idea. And they said, after you go through training, like everyone else on the volunteer fire department. And so that's what I'm doing um, and hope to just learn more about the fire department members are members of the community who are reaching out to other members of the community. And what does that look like? What does that connection, does it create divisiveness because of um, lack of understanding of one another? Or does it create more support? And what does that look like? So I don't know where the journey will take me, but um, I'm moving through the training. And um, it's a combination of fire departments. So I visited Kings Creek, which is not where I was supposed to go and sort of got lost in the GPS and ended up at Sandlick Fire Department, which is where I'm doing my training, but there's a combination of folks from all the different fire departments attending training with me. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm Rachel Geringer, and for this episode, I spoke with Angie Hegeman, Operations Director for the ETSU Center for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention and Treatment. Angie talked about current strategies for combating the drug epidemic in the region and some ideas she has for ways to bring more community healing into the treatment process. Since since you just sort of raised this idea that there have been sort of questions among firefighters that you've talked to around, should we be doing this? Should just the general public have access to Narcan? Um... I think these are conversations that aren't just happening in, in this county, right? They're happening throughout the region that people are confused about um, some of the treatment strategies and are they actually helping solve the problem or are they keeping people dependent on substances, right? There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of confusion mm-hmm. <laughs> and clearly it's really complicated issues. But you also mentioned some community uh, resistance to the clinic in East Tennessee. And I wonder if you could just talk about some of like what people are afraid of, some of what people are confused by um, in terms of this, these approaches to treatment. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the average layperson doesn't get a brochure that talks about this, right? They know people, people who are uh, have substance use disorder and people who are behaving very badly and they're stealing from their family members to... Um, to prevent withdrawal and because it's the nature of the disease it hijacks your brain and you are not the same person so folks don't know any of the literature or the evidence or things like that and we also know that mental health has been treated in a way for for many many years mental health from depression anxiety all of those things are highly stigmatized people don't want someone with a mental health disorder to marry into their family Um, there's this fear of mental health disorders and this thinking that they're dangerous people. And and granted, sometimes when people get very desperate, they can be dangerous. Um, so I think it's just about stigma. I don't know how to inform the public about the actual, that'd be like informing the public about how does metformin work? Metformin is a drug used for diabetes. How does that work in the body? Why should you give it? What dose should you give it? But for whatever reason, when people don't, maintain their diet their 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 diet to prevent diabetes symptoms we don't get mad at them we don't say why did you eat that what are you doing why aren't you doing this you need to stop taking that medicine because it's a crutch but for whatever reason we say that to folks with substance use disorder so the split between mental health disorders and physical primary care stuff is very different i i I, it hurts me to know that there's a drug out there that can keep people from dying that we're keeping them from because we're telling them it's a crutch, right? And, and it's not for everyone. Everyone doesn't need medication. Some folks do great in AA or NA. Some folks do great with abstinence-based faith. I highly recommend it. But if you've transitioned to intravenous drug use and you've been using drugs for 10 or 15 years at a very high dose, your chance of success, cold turkey quitting, is real slim. The likelihood that you will relapse and potentially die is really high. Um, so getting folks to understand that there's lots of treatment and certain people are really great for medication-assisted treatment and some folks aren't. Um, and that just getting people stabilized and saving their lives is possible um, when we begin to have these conversations. Um, so yeah, I, that stigma and Narcan, you know, there's a lot of talk that people are going to use more drugs if they get Narcan. Well, the best thing is to ask people who are active users and we don't often ask them, right? We'll ask them once they're recovered and once they're safe again. But, you know, do you really want to be hit by Narcan? You know, do you really want to go into automatic withdrawal? So as soon as you get Narcan, you get all of those withdrawal symptoms that you've been trying to avoid. Nobody really wants that. So I'm not sure where it comes from. So I'm interested. I do do respect the different opinions of folks who are in the field administering this. But um, the Surgeon General, all of the major medical groups say that Narcan should be available to every person that can have it until this epidemic is under control. Um, I could take the Narcan that I have in my purse and squirt it in your nose and you're totally safe. It's not going to hurt you. Um, There's no real proof that it increases use. Um, But we're continuing to study it. So why not save a life? And if I have to save a life six times, okay. That's six times that this person gets another chance at recovery and another chance to spend a day here with all of us. So I don't always know how to address it. Um, I think there's ways that we could have more mass media campaigns, more dialogue, more stories of recovery. Um, There are a lot of strategies. But right now it's just sort of one-on-one conversations about this as much as we can. And I think giving voice to those who are in recovery 
is a really good idea too. You've talked a lot about mental health um, disorders, I believe is the term you've used, mm-hmm. um, and substance abuse disorder and a connection there. Um, could you talk more about that? Is uh, is the research showing that the majority of folks who are experiencing substance abuse disorder also have experienced depression or anxiety? Or what's the kind of connection there that you've seen? Mm-hmm. Um, so comorbidity is what we call it, or co-occurring disorders. I wish I had a specific number for the prevalence of having both, but yes, very high rates. Very common for folks who have substance use disorder to have a comorbid um, mental health condition, okay. um, depression, anxiety, trauma. Um, so we talk a lot about adverse child experiences and how those impact folks. So post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma, um, early childhood trauma are highly correlated with later substance abuse, later mental health conditions. Um, And so, yeah, there's a lot of interconnectedness. And and what comes first? You know, do folks have mental health conditions, depression, anxiety, trauma, and then they treat it so that they get a hold of of a certain drug that makes all of this feel better and they feel normal and they feel okay for the first time in perhaps years? Or does the active substance abuse over a number of years create the conditions for depression and anxiety? I think that's different per for every person and I don't I'm that's not my specific area of expertise but yes comorbid conditions are high and adverse childhood experiences and trauma are very highly correlated with substance use disorder so so to get back sort of to your interest in in story circles and in potentially um, more like heart-based re- responses to the opioid epidemic um, could you talk a little bit more about your thinking around how that might be useful um, and around potentially what's missing? I mean, you've 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 sort of hinted at that that the approaches to sort of addressing this crisis um, are leaving out some pieces of people's like healing processes. So I'm wondering, like, either if there are things that you've sort of seen through being connected with Apple Shop or this community. Um, in in Letcher County through the Culture Hub, um, or if there's just sort of like more ideas you have about how um, some more story-based approaches could be helpful. Yeah, I'm still muddling through it all. But like I said, I was a, I'm a counselor by training first, and then a public health practitioner, and now public health researcher, sort of just in the last five years. So what we know about people and individuals and all counseling treatment for them, that there's a variety of things that heal them and make them um, stable again or help to treat mental health conditions. Um, And some of that is getting connected with their, um, maybe it's uh, CBT, cognitive-based therapy, getting connected with their inner thoughts and how to reframe that. So in a sense, that's telling yourself a different story, right? So I think my automatic thought is something negative, and then I remind myself that that's an automatic thought that was preceded by some sort of feeling. So let's be more gentle to myself and tell myself something more positive. And that's actually effective and helps people get better. So just this idea that connecting to connecting to your inner thoughts, connecting to your inner story, reframing your personal story, and connecting to things that are larger than you and having a purpose, right, is important for individuals. So public health interventions are often pretty scientific, 
but they don't get at that, right? Like, how do we tell our story differently? How does a community have a different story? How does a community connect to things that are bigger? And is the bigger connecting to each other? And what does that look like? So after Wayne Coombs sent me on this journey, I started doing a lot of reading about intergenerational trauma and, you know, Holocaust survivors who their grandchildren were still genetically affected by what happened to their grandparents, right? And American Indians were affected years and years later by this sense of loss. So then I started thinking through, and, and Wayne was pointing me this whole way, and in Appalachia, we had coal or we had timber or we had some sort of extractive economy where people made a lot of money by our hard work and then they went away and kind of left us, right? And so in this post-industrial, post-coal, post-all of this economy, here we are feeling a little disconnected from our mountains and a little disconnected from what maybe was our strength in the past and maybe disconnected from each other. So couldn't that reframing and reframing the public narrative work here? And there are some studies um, with American Indians, especially, and reframing that. And sort of we talk about social haunting as they're using that term in the UK. So how do these these things that have happened to communities haunt the community and have us tell a story that's negative about our community and young people leave it because they're not going to find any hope here, right? So how do we change that? And that's what sent me in that journey. And I really do believe that there's power in the story, power in the narrative for communities the same way that there's proven power in that for individuals. So how does that translate? Um, And so that's what's got me thinking about that healing and I'm seeing some benefits of it and there's some studies, but I think a lot more work needs to be done about how um, that happens. And what we've noticed from the Culture Hub, so we've done some more qualitative interviews with them with the help of uh, Jana Park, um, who is an intern here, um, and another young woman. Why can't I think of her name? I see her face two interns who were here all summer oh i'm so sorry i forgot her name I'm also claire, claire 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 and Jenna. Yes, yes. yes so they interviewed folks and they came up with some themes like what what is working and what people are saying so far just interim results is that they trust each other more and that because there were scarce resources one community didn't like another community who might have had a different community center or they felt that somebody got more than they got and there was so much competition because resources were scarce and so much distrust because you hadn't owned what you made before. You'd sort of been competing for jobs that were going away. Um, and so there's trust, there's awareness of what other communities are doing and a desire to help each other thrive. Um, and so those little things are starting to show. And even though it's only been around for a couple of years now, um, so I think it'll be interesting to see how that continues to develop. You've talked a little bit about what opioids do to someone's brain and how they sort of like hijack your thinking um, based on really trying to avoid the withdrawal symptoms at all costs. I wonder if, I don't know, in terms of, it seems like you know a lot about this, but if this isn't a thing Mm -hmm. that you feel comfortable talking about, that's fine. But if you could sort of like talk more about that, about um, what you know about the experience um, of folks who are are really struggling with, with these symptoms. Yeah. I I can't go very deep into the sort of neurobiology of the disease, but um, it starts out, again, they're called called mu receptors that the opioids like and that they stick onto. Um, But what we're starting to see is so, so 
people react differently to opioids. Some folks take them a painkiller and they feel nauseous, they feel gross, they don't want it. Um, other folks get it and for the first time they sort of have energy or a sense of, I feel amazing, I feel normal. Um, and so that different response is being tested. What's the genetic makeup? And they're doing a lot. There's a lot of progress being made about how people respond differently. The people that like it. Um, so folks can become physically. So it's a progression, right? You start with, I've never misused a prescription drug at all to, okay, I did. It felt good. And then I'm taking a little bit more. And now I'm using it more frequently. Um, or you're prescribed it for surgery and you take it for the guarantee, you know, the amount of time that you're supposed to. And then you go through physical withdrawal. So anyone where there's a, a friend of ours called Steve Lloyd, who's worked with us for a long time. Um, and he says, I could get the Pope dependent, physically dependent on opioids in seven days. Anyone who takes them regularly for seven days is going to have withdrawal. You're going to feel icky when you go off of it. That's physical dependence. So then you slide along that continuum and there's a point where you meet full criteria for opioid use disorder. So you have to continue using more and more and then you begin to lose control. And so the receptors are firing. Um, you begin to sort of be more in what I would say brainstem mode. So your frontal lobe is sort of hijacked by the need, the cravings, the need to prevent yourself from being dope sick. Right, And so as you move along physical dependence into addiction, that need, it takes more and more to keep you from being gravely ill. So withdrawal from opioids in the beginning can feel like, oh, I feel a little icky, maybe some nausea, um, some aches and pains to full-blown, it's the worst flu I've ever had. I feel like I'm going to die. Um, and so it takes more and more to prevent that. And then again, your brainstem is firing, trying to keep that withdrawal from happening. Your frontal lobe is where, hmm, is this going to um, affect my job? Is it going to affect my life? That's where all the decision-making happens becomes hijacked and becomes more dormant and there are brain, brain scams scams brain scams <laughs> it's that too brain scans that show that you know you're it you're not firing in the same ways you're not thinking through things you're you're there's a, a study talk about delayed discounting and so where someone who doesn't have substance use disorder could be asked okay if i could give you a hundred dollars now or a thousand dollars if you'll wait two weeks so that's called, you know, your willingness to delay gratification. Folks with active substance use disorder, I mean, the future for them is like four hours. So that 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 whole system is hijacked and changed when you're in um, full scale opioid use disorder. I don't know if that helps. That's helpful. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Um, and again, I don't know the specifics of like where your expertise is and isn't, but um, when you talked about a prevalence of childhood trauma being a a high predictor for substance abuse disorder. Um, sometimes I think the way that we are taught to understand trauma is like a very narrow um, focus of like the many things that can can fit within that category. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, more about that, about what do you mean by childhood trauma mm -hmm. um, that might lead to substance abuse disorder? Yeah. Well, most of the work now being done is it's a study that's pretty darn old. I feel like it's 40 years ago, but it's a Dr. Felitti and it's the Adverse Child Experiences Study. I think it was in the 90s. And what they did was ask folks questions about, I think there are 12 questions about um, childhood trauma. And the, the, the things are, were your parents divorced? Um, did you ever see someone yelling at each other? Were you regularly yelled at and humiliated? Did you feel unsafe? 
Did you have a parent who had a substance use disorder? Did you have a parent who had a, a mental health disorder like depression or anxiety? Um, did you ever wonder if you were going to have enough to eat? Did you ever feel unsafe? Um, and so it's everything from you know having your basic needs met or not met to watching someone be pushed and shoved to a divorce to a parent who is incarcerated or substance use disorder. So all of those things apply. Um, and they did this for, I don't know how many people, thousands. It was a very large study over a period of time. And folks who answered yes to four or more of those criteria, and I think it's four of 12, but it could be four of 10. I think it's four of 12. No, it's 10. People who answered more than four out of 10 had these, I mean, really unfortunate higher risk for um, dying prematurely, heart disease, other chronic diseases, substance use disorder, intravenous drug use, likelihood to be in jail. And so, I mean, I have been in settings where people would give this screener to people and then say, here, you're more likely to if you have higher than, you know. And so I, I think we have to be very careful because it's not pre you're predestined, you're at higher risk. And so there are a number of things you can do if you meet, you know, if you if you have a high number of ACEs. Most people do not have, most people have zero to one ACE. Um, and so it's a smaller number that have those high levels. So it's a, it's, a, it's a chunk of the population that if we knew or if we could prevent that childhood trauma in the first place by making healthy communities, you know, then a lot of this wouldn't happen. So we're talking again about root causes. But yeah, trauma, I think we think of as, you know, you saw someone get murdered or you were physically or sexually abused. And that sort of we limit it to that. And I think that's what you were saying. But it's much broader. Yeah. And I think that. That seems like a missing piece in terms of a general um, public understanding of 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 people being at higher risk, as you've said, because um, because I, I do think we in terms of this like pattern of blaming folks for having substance abuse disorder that that more information about the like many things happening in a community or in someone's life that can can lead to a sense of despair, a sense of not feeling okay and seeking a sense of being okay somewhere yeah. else is yeah. probably really helpful and potentially missing for a lot of communities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The conversation's resurfacing around this trauma mm -hmm. thing. And I do think it's very helpful to engaging in other conversations about mental health and substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, those are kind of all my questions that I have for you. What, um, I guess I have sort of a two-part question I'll ask together. Was there something else that you were wanting to talk about, wanting to make sure we hit on, um, or, and or, um, what else do you think people need to sort of understand about these issues? Yeah, wow. I don't know. It's sort of like, what's my wish list? <laughs> I mean, I really think that the work that um, the Culture Hub is doing in, in connecting community members um, in something that's building up the community is going to be really helpful. And I think folks um, giving compassion to others and being more compassionate and less blaming um, and really wrapping their arms around the community members and knowing that people do get better from this disease. It's not hopeless. People do get better. Actually, folks who are in treatment for substance use disorder are more likely 
to maintain abstinence, then folks who have diabetes are likely to maintain their behavioral part of it. So folks get better um, and just sort of just more love and understanding about about this problem and um, yeah, working together because building better communities makes all of this better and prevents it from happening in the future. So we can recover from this one, but we're going to have to work together to maintain our strong Appalachian culture. And I mean, you know, these these mountain people are so strong and so resilient. And um, there's just, you know, we're, we're very divided on this topic. And so I guess just keep doing the work that's happening and, and show more compassion to one another. I, that's, I mean, that sounds like an advice or like a, even a magic wand. But I think that that's what's important because I think there is something very unique about these communities that the rest of our nation doesn't have that we really need to um, embrace. Yeah. Great. And if people want to learn more about the center where you work or about some of that research, how could they do that? Yep. Our website is, oh, it's got some forward slashes in it. But if you just Google ETSU Prescription Drug Abuse Center, it pops right up. And all of our research, all of our community work, a little four-minute video of what we do, it's all there. Great. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me today. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk. We spoke with Angie Hegeman of the ETSU Center for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention and Treatment. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find them on our website at wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk from SoundCloud or Stitcher. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, Thanks for listening to Real People Radio. Thank you.